Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E. T-S. I have people, dishwashers who are now chefs and line cooks who've been with me for 17, 18 years. I have a woman from Vietnam has been with me 27 years, from Thailand been with me 23 years. I have learned from these people. My food has been influenced by a lot of these people. They've taught me, I've taught them, and it's just this family. It's hard to explain, but it's not about the money, Sam. It's never about the money. If it was about the money, I would have stayed in New York City. My guest today is Karen Carrier. Karen is an artist, a chef, and an entrepreneur. Karen began her culinary career in New York City after dropping out of college and enrolling in the New York Cooking School. Karen got her start working with the well-known chef Susan Trilling and the rest is history. Karen has been nationally recognized through her work by publications such as the New York Times, Food and Wine, National Geographic, Garden and Gun, and more. Karen has been invited twice to participate and cook at the acclaimed James Beard House in New York City. Karen has also served as a personal chef for Hollywood stars, such as Tom Cruise and more. I had a wonderful time talking with Karen, where you'll learn, once an artist, always an artist, why she didn't conform and how she has always pushed the envelope. The relationships that shape you early on and how this has impacted her craft. Even after four decades in this work, how she still hustles and what she's had to do to survive the COVID-19 pandemic. From concept to execution, how she launches her restaurants and the process she goes through. Whether you are celebrity or not, we're all the same and how she's confident with her craft. This is what you do, this is what I do, and more. A quick note at the top of the show, you'll notice during this interview, there's a few funky sounds throughout the interview just through the internet connection. I record a lot of these interviews off of Zoom and sometimes it happens. We work hard to try to eliminate these things and they're small and subtle, but they get on my nerves, so they may get on yours. If you hear it, sorry about that. Just keep listening. You'll be able to get through the whole interview. Please enjoy this week's episode with Karen Carrier. Karen, great to see you. Thanks for coming on this morning. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. For those that, if you're going to get this on a podcast, you won't see the video, but Karen, you look great, ready to roll, and you look oh. like you've, you've been up and for six hours. And Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I read a quote that you're vivacious, energetic, and I don't know the other word, but uh, you're living up to your reputation. Oh, you're sweet. We got a lot of New Orleans uh, refugees or evacuees here um, came in last night, so uh, 
we've been feeding them and swimming and having a big time trying to make them feel at home during this really tough time down there. Yeah, I'll just start there. You know, I know I read an article a couple of years ago that I don't know if you did open up a restaurant down there or not yet, but uh, I read that you had plans to. But, you know, I also read when the pandemic hit your restaurants, the first thing you said you did was a GoFundMe. I think you raised twenty five, thirty thousand dollars right. for, for your staff at your restaurants. Can you maybe talk about your interest in New Orleans and then, but specifically, even just with something like this with the latest hurricane? With you bringing refugees up here to stay with you, I mean, where'd that come from, and what'd that look like here? Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of people in New Orleans that are from Memphis, and some of them had worked for me in the past. Some of them I've met. I do a lot of catering down there. I had looked at quite a few places over the years, thought about even relocating there. My kids, me, everything after my husband passed, um, but then just couldn't leave my hometown. You know, it was like oh, almost on the lease, didn't do it. But I've been catering down there like crazy for many, many, many years. One of my best friends is a big lawyer down there, head of the Bar Association. And so we've been just catering for all those people. And I think that um, when Katrina hit, it was interesting because I back then I still owned Automatic Slims and I had the beauty shop and um, my catering business and, you know, the Molly Fontaine Lounge, which actually was Cielo back then. I've changed a lot of restaurants over the years. So I brought a lot of the people up. After Katrina, a lot of people evacuated to Memphis. And um, and I hired a lot of people at my restaurants back then. And they stayed with me for many years before they decided to move back to New Orleans. And it lasted about, about a good 10 years that they were with me. And I have this really love relationship with New Orleans. You know, I my thing about New Orleans, which is really great, is you know, they say you're dying to live or living to die. But the great thing about New Orleans is you're dying to live. You can get a gallop pause on a Friday lunch and you see like my mother's 92, but you'll see a gentleman that's 95. He's having a huge birthday party. And that's the only day they're open for lunch. It's the locals that always come. And I just it just brings me so much joy, like any excuse to have a party. And as a caterer, that's great. And any excuse to have a party is a way that people live in New Orleans. And also I have a music club. And so I've been bringing tons of musicians and bands and back to Memphis from New Orleans, supporting the whole music scene down there over the years, even between Katrina and now, of course, with Ida. Um, actually, one of the girls now, Sarah Quintana, she's going to open up for Marcella uh, Simeon, who's also from Lafayette, but lives in Memphis. Saturday night, we're um, doing mainly in my parking lot because of COVID. Musicians don't want to play inside. So now we're doing all these concerts outside. So, you know, you just got to change with the times and roll with those punches quickly, especially during the pandemic and COVID and the hurricanes. And oh my gosh, just keep on going. It's just been a crazy two years, seriously. So, like, what happened? Where did you start to have a heart for New Orleans? I have been going to the New Orleans Jazz Fest since inception. <laughs> and so I've been going forever. And even when I lived in Memphis, when I moved to New York City, I'd always take the train down or drive down from the New Orleans Jazz Fest because I have so many friends down there. And also it just beats a big love of my heart. You know, I think the music scene in New Orleans, the music scene in Memphis, there's a real camaraderie. It's it's just a great city. And also you have to realize I've been going to Jamaica for since I was 17. 
and I'm in my 60s now. And so to me, New Orleans is the only true Caribbean town in the heart of the United States. So you feel like you're in an island in the heart of America. And that's quite a hard thing to have happen. But it's got the flair and the music and the food and the Creole you know, and it's just there's so much going on there that lends itself to an island like Jamaica. You know, it's just it's the heartbeat of that of that city. Yeah. Even just within a couple minutes in on this conversation, you seem to have an ability, a very unique ability to have a lot of fun uh, to party <laughs> and yep. but, but to also be on top of your stuff. And you, you have four restaurants that that I know of right now. And then you have a catering company here. And I still own a bar in New York City. You own a bar in New York City. And then you do catering in New Orleans. And I know you served as a personal chef for people like Tom Cruise and others. So how can you speak to your ability to live life in a large way, have a lot of fun, but also just be so good at business or at least so on top of things from an operational standpoint to be able to keep up with so much? Well, actually, to be honest, Sam, I was a painter. You know, I started off as a painter. I was a graduate of the Memphis Art Academy, which is, was now the College of Art, which is now closed. I went to New York to go to graduate school at Hunter as on a scholarship in painting. But I think that I have always, as a painter, I've been shooting from the hip as an artist. And I do believe that the culinary world is an art form in a lot of ways. It wasn't as big. It started becoming really big when I was living in New York City in the early 80s. And I was there for nine years, but now it's just huge. And I think that for me, I learned under a woman named Susanna Trilling, who lives in Oaxaca, Mexico. She has um, Seasons of My Heart catering. She has a little shop in the heart of Oaxaca. She was, uh, she has a cook, she had a cookbook out. She was on, she had a show out on the Travel Channel many years ago. But I learned from Susanna. She, we used to be called Trixie and Dixie. She was uh, from Philly, moved to Austin, Texas, moved from Austin, Texas to New York. I moved from Memphis, met her in the bathroom at the Lone Star Cafe, smoking a doobie, <laughs> whatever. And uh, she was like uh, looking for people to cater for her. And I, kicked the door of the urinal. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I need a job. And I just graduated from the six-week intensive culinary school before I started graduate school. I had to find a way to make a living. I just didn't have enough money to live in New York from the scholarship. And so I went to work for her the next day. And she lived with, um, it's, it's a great story. She lived with Tony Garnier, who has been with Bob Dylan, the head of his band, the bass player for 30 years. Back then he was with other bands, Asleep at the Wheel, Robert Gordon, all these. So when I got up to her loft, it was crazy. I, I got off the subway on Avenue A. And back then in 1980, um, <laughs> this is crazy. I got off the subway and on Avenue A it was just a lot of junkies. And you know, I thought these people were dead on the streets. So I'd like step over them was like where am i why am i doing this and then i knocked on this door and nobody came and finally she screamed from the third floor dropped a key inside a monkey sock and i walked up these rickety stairs the door opened to this loft and there tony was making gumbo there were women there from belize from mexico and i'm like whoa and she was like come on man we have a catering gig and so i started cooking with her and i never looked back i dropped out of 
<laughs> I literally about three months later dropped out of graduate school. We started catering all over. We catered like the Hell's Angels on Third Street. There was a party because he was in the Hell's Angels. And we did like we were on the road with the clash and we went, we were doing the stray cats first video in brooklyn when they were just starting out and we did the opening opening of the zackler wing at the met so we just and she just had this way about her that was she was cultivating a family and from her i learned really that this business even though it was hard and we started opening restaurants we opened three restaurants while i was with her and um she and her boyfriend they broke up but they're still very close and i'm still close to him as well but she and moved, she moved to oaxaca crazy stuff but from her i learned how to really run personalities and i think running i don't know if running personalities but how to meld personalities together it's almost like who you hire it's a sixth sense because they have to all work together in this beautiful familia type of way and if it doesn't work you just have bodies that don't really have a jive and in the restaurant world it, you have to have it's almost i call it the theater of the absurd or the kitchen dance you know where everybody's working off each other it's really like a ballet it's amazing and for me really sam i shoot from the hip i love what i do i love people i love being out on the front trying to talk to the people you know in the front of the restaurant or on catering gigs, creating catering gigs that look like artwork. I don't really stop to think about it. I just keep going. Somebody said, Karen, how do you do it? Well, why do you, how do you have four places, catering business, this, that, go to New Orleans, come back. I go, I don't really stop to think about it. It was almost like when my husband passed, all I could do was my kids were six and eight. And all I knew was I had to be present and make sure their life was as normal as it could be. And I just had to keep going. And it's strange, but I sort of never look back. I just keep going. <laughs> For like family or parents, friends, would they say that you kind of took this really dramatic curve or like pivot when you moved to New York and then you dropped out of Hunter College? Yeah. Were you taught to take risks early on or do people just feel like you went rogue? What'd that look like? Well, no, I was, uh, to be honest with you, Sam, I was, I can say this online because you can edit it out, but I was a pretty big fuck up in high school. I was in a lot of trouble. My parents were very orthodox. I come from a very kosher orthodox Jewish family, extremely. My mom's from London. My grandfather was a cantor in, in New York and in London in the synagogue. My grandfather had the, one of the first synagogues down on, in the pinch district. Um, and he had Blockman junk company. Um, you know, I grew up in the fifties and sixties, you know, with Martin Luther King's death and everything that happened here. I was always getting Jewish guys to pick me up to go out with non-Jewish guys. I was constantly just, you know, like, why do I have to, why do I have to be under these rules? Why, you know, I don't want to be under your thumb, mom. And my dad was a little more lenient, and you know, he just sort of tolerated <laughs> so I didn't have to deal with my mother. And so, um, but I think that I was always pushing the envelope. You know, I wanted to see what was out there. And my mother was a great cook and a great baker. Did I cook as a young kid? No. Did I sit by her side and watch her and eat everything that came out of her oven? Yes. So when I was living with this musician, 
I started cooking for him and all these people here in Memphis before I left Memphis to move to New York. Gotcha. So you had, I guess, felt that entire time up to that point, frustrated to live inside of a system. And then you were able to kind of, you just kind of push through that. And then I did and never look back. I never look back. I never look back. I started, I, a friend of mine, um, Sarah Jane Foster was working for Martha Stewart and she was from Humboldt, Tennessee. And she was like, Hey, Karen, if you come up, you know, go to this culinary school. It's just six weeks, six days a week, 10 hours a day. And once you get out, I'll get you a job with Martha. And I was like, okay. And I did that before I started graduate school and I loved it. I just couldn't believe how, how much fun it was. And that night that I, the last night of culinary school is when I met Susanna at the Lone Star Cafe. And then it just, everything just started snowballing. And I was like, wow, this is really a lot of fun. And I got to really see New York City. I mean, we catered for the head of General Electric, breakfast in bed for two um, on Fifth Avenue. I mean, we did the craziest stuff. It was wild. How's it changed? I mean, I've been six, seven times, all of those since 2006. You talked about the 80s being such a great time. You obviously still own a bar there. But what are top two or three things that, from how you've seen it that have really changed? Well, now, you know, obviously, when I went, I, would, I usually go twice a year. My son lives in Brooklyn. I have another son that lives in Sonoma, California. But I, I mean, I have a, a love for New York. I, I miss it. I, I The energy on that street, I can't get anywhere else. So I have to go there and rejuvenate. I mean, I really do. It's Even if I'm walking for like two hours, just I call it window shopping, just looking in windows and stopping and eating a little bit here, eating a little bit there, you know, like they'll say, oh, go out to dinner with Karen. You're going to eat 20,000 things in like in five different places in two hours, you know, but it's like, that's where I, I get my energy and I get my inspiration. It's Jamaica, New Orleans, New York City. California out on the coast, it's it's important to me. If I can't travel, you know, I'm like, I'm in my head and I, I've got to, I've got to get those new tastes. I got to see what's going on in, in different parts of the country. It's, it's extremely important. And, you know, I always say, if you rest on your laurels, you're toast, you know, you're just, you're just done. So I feel like you have to stay on the cutting edge. And I think New York City, my personal opinion is, no matter what happens to that city, it will always come back. It will always come back. And it was proven in the 70s when it was really having a hard time, came back in the 80s. The beginning of the 90s, it was having a hard time, came back full force. You know, just it's gone through ebbs and flows for so many years, but it's one of the greatest cities in the whole flipping world. And the art in every form that comes out of there, from dance to visual, you know, to every form is just the strongest that you'll ever find. You know, you see people playing on the streets or in the subway stations that some of the greatest musicians ever, I have stuff on my phone that would blow your mind of people singing in the subways that are just miraculous. And, you know, it's important to me. That's life. That is the the grit and the life that I want to live, you know? Yeah. I do believe that New York is having a tough time right now, Um, When I was there before, well, sort of after the initial pandemic, there were so many for rent signs everywhere. It was, it was shocking, shocking. (laughs) I mean, I'm in, I'm walking up and down Prince Street, it's like for rent, for rent, for rent, everywhere for rent. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? And what happened, a lot of it was 
the rents were so high that people couldn't afford them anymore. They were just driving it out. You know, they kept saying they're driving the creatives out. They're driving the creatives out. And that was scary. And so, so many people, you know, have moved to Brooklyn, but Brooklyn is somewhat expensive. But, you know, the creatives will always come back to New York City. Always. It's just, it's the, it's the life and the beating heart of that city. Curious to kind of double down there for a second. You know, I, I pulled something online that I read about you. It says, you know, Karen has received numerous accolades and publications in television, such as Gourmet, The New York Times, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Travel and Leisure, Garden and Gun, National Geographic, Chicago Sun-Times, CNN, Food Network. I could go on. But you're describing people that are excellent at what they do, have a heart for what they're doing, and they're up there, they're risking it, and they're creative. And yeah. I think you're saying that that gives you you see that in others. It sounds like it connects in your own heart and your own life, but then you've seen that in yourself. And obviously, you're very successful at what you do. You have a national reputation. You were asked by the James Beard Foundation two times, I believe, to go up there for two different appearances. I'm just curious, what is it about you that it doesn't matter if the person's famous or not, but that you see in the creative that's risking it? What does that feel like when you see it? Or is that a fair assessment? No, for assessment, I think you know it. I mean, for me, I say dedication and loyalty, but it's also someone who's yearning to learn, you know, really yearning to learn something new. They're not just robotic. You know, they're a great grill master, but they want to they want to try something different. You know, they can go through the motions. That's robotic. But when you have that love of what you're doing and the people around you, <clears throat> it's funny at the beauty shop right now, I have people who have been with me, oh my gosh. Number one, Dana, who's came from New York City. Her father was a, in the deli business and owned a couple of restaurants in Manhattan, grew up in the city. She started with me in 1987 or 88, I, 88. I started another roadside attraction catering in 87. She's been with me ever since. She now runs my catering business. I have people, dishwashers who are now chefs and line cooks who've been with me for 17, 18 years. I have other people, a woman from Vietnam has been with me 27 years, from Thailand, been with me 23 years. I've learned from these people. My food has been influenced by a lot of these people. And they've taught me, I've taught them. And it's just this family. It's, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's not about the money, Sam. It's never about the money. If it was about the money, I would have stayed in New York City. <laughs> That's where I would have made my big bucks. But I met Bob, my husband. I had to go to New York to meet a guy from Memphis, which was ridiculous. And then he moved back. And of course, I moved back a few years later. Didn't want to, but did. But um, I think that I have been around a lot of different people in my life, from low to high to middle, all kinds of people, from very religious people to very non-religious people to Buddhists. And I think that my experiences growing up in the time that I grew up in the 60s and 70s is giving me an incredible outlook into different personalities and different people and what their needs are and how to guide them. And by guiding them, they guide me. It's a give and take. And so when you see somebody, and I call them little gems, because once you see that twinkle, you know it and you hold on to it and you just start nourishing it. And I've always believed it's one thing Susanna Trilling taught me. You have to treat people the way you want to be treated. 
You have to make sure that they get the stuff that you want from this life. And it's definitely <laughs> the golden thought. It works. And it's very important. When you say the twinkle, is that just a vibe? Is that a read that you get off somebody? I mean, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it is a vibe. It is something, you, you know, they come in every day. They're just so excited about being there. You know, look, we all burn out at some point in this business. It's a tough one. It's physical. It's emotional. And, you know, since the pandemic, I'll be very honest with you. It's It's been tough. It has been tough. Myself and Shay, um, the girl who's been running my kitchen, Widmer, and Dana, who's been running my catering business, we were the three people who never stopped working during the pandemic. Going back to what you were talking about when we were told to shut down in Memphis um, on a Thursday, we had to shut down the next day on a Friday. That Thursday, I brought every one of my staff in from all my restaurants and my catering businesses. There were about 65 people. And we put up two computers on the bar and I made everybody sign up for unemployment and then told everybody that, you know, until things were changed, no one could come back in. But me and Shay and Dana started doing to go that next day. And we never looked back. Everybody else had three months off and they had their stimulus and they had their money, <laughs> but not us. We just kept going because I felt like if I had shut down, I don't know why I say this, but I felt like we might have been forgotten. And I felt like I had to keep going to make sure that the people who had to go on unemployment had a place to come back to two to three months later. And I felt it was extremely important that I just kept, again, moving forward, putting my head down and just keep going. And, I, and I've done that in so many different facets of my life. And it's weird to think about it. But in talking to you, it makes me aware that I keep doing that. It's really weird. I don't know. You know, I, I think that I have, my mom is a very, she's 92 and she's, she's just so strong-willed. And she just, you know, she really exposed me to so many great things in my life. You know, going to New York as a kid all the time, going to Cape Cod, going to Provincetown, flying here, going to London, you know, exposing me to, to art, to this, to that, going to art school on Saturdays when I was a little kid, learning how to paint. My aunt was a painter. I think all that and my father being so cool, he like gave Furry Lewis's set of teeth to go on Johnny Carson. And, you know, I would go with him to meet Bobby Blue Bland when he would do the whole band's teeth because he was a dentist they get off the bus one by one and i was just enamored like what the hell <laughs> you know <laughs> there'd be a wad of money in bobby blue bland's pocket he'd be pulling out his oh this is you know it was just my life is when i think back on it, it was wild so it's followed it's kind of the way you're describing exactly. your mother and how strong-willed she is and then also i know you said your aunt was an artist Oh, yeah. She, oh, my aunt was wild. What about your mom? My aunt, my mom was not. No, my mom was very conservative, but she was very. It's funny. She was very conservative. She's like I said, she was great in the kitchen. She was very much the home home mom where my aunt and my uncle were my favorites in the whole world. They passed on now. They ended up living. They lived in New York City. They're all from London. And then they moved to Israel. Um, they lived in a cave in Israel for many, many years and um, on the Lebanon border. And, and it was a beautiful cave. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but my aunt and my uncle were wild. I mean, they were 
wild. Nana Simone was my aunt's best friend. Wow. So when I was 10 years old, I would go shoe shopping with them and um, at Bloomingdale's. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't know who Nina Simone was, but they'd just be smoking their cigarettes, you know. And, you know, just my aunt was was wild. And I, I really um, am a lot like my aunt in a lot of ways. But I have that tenacity of my mom. And the great thing about my dad was he was always giving. He was a dentist who, true story, Sam, when he died, I swear about three or 400 people showed up at his at the synagogue here. And a lot of them were his patients. He, my mom would go, you're not charging these people. He'd go, oh, Hazel, leave it alone. He charged them $5 a month. You know, they couldn't pay. He didn't care. He'd still fix their teeth. And he was one of the first dentists who worked on African-Americans in Memphis. And he had, he loved it and they loved him. And he was, before there were grills, he was doing golds with like martini glasses in them. Oh, the wow. Signs of like one gold going in their teeth. And it was, it's really funny. Like He's I a think pioneer. That, he was a pioneer before he even knew it was him. <laughs> And they lined up around the block to come in to see him. It was hilarious. But, and, you know, he loved coming over when I lived with uh, this non-Jewish musician. My mother would never come over. My dad came over because he loved all the musicians and would sit around and listen to them play. And it was, it's, the, the dichotomy was hilarious. As much as you can share, are you close with your mom today? Oh, yes, very much. Yes. We, we hurdled a lot of hurdles over the years. I married a non-Jew. She wanted him to convert. He would have converted. I said, no, I believe that he should have done it for himself, not for my mother, you know, and, but they were very close and she, and she, she loved him. And, you know, she has two beautiful grandchildren because of Bob, even though he, he died at 45, very young. And, um, but no, she's, uh, she's learned a lot and come a long way over the years. Yeah. I was thinking about this when you were talking about to go back a second, and then I'm sure we'll pick back up here again. But you talked about you heard on a Thursday, had to close on a Friday. You put two computers on the bar. You brought in 65 people. You've said earlier in the conversation, you have a catering company in New Orleans and you own a bar in New York. No, I have a catering company in Memphis, but I cater in New Orleans. Okay. So you move them down. Just if you go back to that and you kind of put the business owner, entrepreneur hat on, did you let the bar go in New York? Because if you own you know, a company, you know, there's just so many things that you sometimes you just you feel like you can't touch or you can't control. What gave you complete clarity there? And how did you think through that to take care of what was most crucial to get through that? Well, first of all, let me explain about my bar in New York. There was 10 of us when we first started in 1986. Well, we started, we opened on the bicentennial in 1986 when I still lived there. And it was me and nine guys. <laughs> well, over the years, my partner, David Zinzer, so his father owned the building. And it was in, down in the corner of Bank in Washington in the West Village. And he bought everybody out, but he would not. He's still to this. He won't buy me out. Okay. And so the great thing about it is, did I receive money after I left New York from that bar? Oh, no. But the great thing was my son was able to park in there after he graduated Rhode Island School of Design. And anybody who ever came up there could go and eat, drink for free there. And, and I could bring all my friends there. And to this day, me and David are extremely so close. And the bar is still going. And that is insane. I mean, that was opened in 1986. Yeah. 
that's rare. And so, you know, what the hell is like 15 bar stools and three tables. And it is so funky. And it's just, it's like a Memphis juke joint in the heart of Manhattan. It's fantastic. I will be there next time I go to New York. There you go. I will let you go. You'll be drinking for free. Memphis juke joint. You say no more. <laughs> right. Exactly. But the thing is, is as far as New York, David dealt with that. I didn't even have to think. My biggest concern was, you know, the Molly Fontaine Lounge, the beauty shop, another roadside attraction, Bar DKDC, Bacto. It was just crazy. And um, so for me, I just had to focus on the people here around me. And that was my biggest concern. That was my, who knew when we were going to be able to reopen? Who knew if it was going to even happen? To this day, Sam, I have not reopened the Molly Fontaine Lounge. Back dough became extra seating because of um, the six-foot distancing that to this day has still become extra seating for the beauty shop. Bar DKDC just reopened in May or June. I think we opened in June. So it's been closed a long time because my my music club doesn't have a stage. So, you know, I knew these musicians, like you couldn't be so close and you're supposed to be six feet apart on the stages and 18 feet from the stage for the people. And I was like, well, I'm screwed. So <laughs> we kept Bar DKDC. That was also extra seating for the beauty shop. So when we had the six feet distancing, when we reopened in June, of 2020, we were able to seat a lot of people because we had next door and out back and the beauty shop. So the beauty shop, we we just we had a lot of seats, but they were all six feet apart. So yeah. it worked. I read that an average restaurant can do a net income of three to five a year. And and I read a story. There's an interview of about the, the profit being nothing. Well, yeah, but then you know, <laughs> last year when the pandemic hit, there's a, I forgot that I should have remembered that guy's name who owns this place in Chicago. You know the restaurant, but he just talked about the stress and the turmoil and pivoting it and doing takeout immediately. And it's one of the nicest restaurants in the country. I forgot the name of it, but I mean, I can't imagine just you know when you own when you own a business and then to think about that and you got four or five of them. But you've also talked about earlier on in the conversation, you have a personality where it's almost like you wrap your head around quickly the most important things, like you talked about your children. It sounds like you live there a day at a time and you just you just keep doing the next thing. But I'm just curious, is there anything that you've learned after being a pro with what, you know, and having the reputation that you do and just having the success that you've had, but how you've learned about how to manage cash flow and capital? where you have like 90% of restaurants, I think in the country are single owner. Very few people are able to have multiple restaurants. Is there any advice that you've learned financially on how to just really manage what you have well and be able to get through something like that? Not even from a from a work standpoint and an emotional toll standpoint, but just from a X's and O's financial standpoint? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, um, when I'm talking about my three places that um, I was able to expand more seating, that's on the same compound. Okay. So, so my music club is next door to the beauty shop and DKDC is in the back, you know, it's the back patio outside for um, behind the beauty shop. So that, that compound was lend itself for me to, to keep going financially. And it was just an, an incredible thing that actually everything happened to be under two or three roofs, so to speak, all next door to each other. Yes. During the pandemic, you had, as you say, pivot, 
you had to pivot quick. And you had, there were a lot of people, owners of restaurants that, that just closed down. They just closed. They didn't open. They thought there's not, there's not enough people. Nobody's going to be coming out or nobody's, you know, how much to go can you do? But I'll tell you, there were nights, <laughs> there were nights, Sam, that we do $300 and I was thankful for it when we were doing to go and we weren't open to the public yet. It was just all to go. And we didn't even deliver. We just did curbside and I didn't use Uber and I didn't use Grubhub because they take 30% of your business. So I was like, you know, I did family meals for $25 for two people. That's $12.50 a person. I was just trying to keep us alive. And I felt like the volume would maybe make it work. There were nights that I'd sit at my bar and at the end of the night and go, oh my God, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, but I, I, it didn't stop me financially. I, you know, all of a sudden the PPP came around, right? And the thing about the PPP was, you know, were they going, you know, that was under the Trump year and were they going to forgive you for that? You know, were you going to be able to have to pay it? back or were you going to have to or were you going to be forgiven and you were going to keep all that money and not have to worry about it that was the only way we could reopen in most places that was the only way they could reopen was from you know the payroll protection plan and that gets into a whole nother thing but if it wasn't for that it would have been really really tough on most of us throughout the nation as far as in the restaurant industry you know i had a nest that I had built up, money that I'd put into investments from the restaurant over the years. And that actually, thank God I did that, put into some stocks that were still doing well. And so those were the things that I knew could keep me afloat for a little while. But once that PPP came about, and then the second PPP came about, which got was even bigger and was longer as far as the 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 time limit that you had to start using it for, you know, those were the things that really kept us going. Otherwise, I think you would have seen a lot more people crashing and burning. And then there was now the revitalization program, the fund for the restaurants out of DC that just came about in the last two or three months. The thing about that is not everybody got it. You know, we just got lucky. And, and we did get it. So I don't know. I look up above and go, I have a lot of guardian angels. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people passed out of my life over the years, people who've worked for me and um, my husband and my father and this and my mentor from the Art Academy. And I mean, I'm going to tell you, I believe in them. And I do believe they are guiding me through a lot of stuff. I know that sounds ridiculous, but no. I think they're yes, I think the spiritual world is real and I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not going off on a tangent here, but I just I have experienced it. I, 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 you know, somebody can leave my restaurant and I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to replace them? And all of a sudden the door opens and this incredible person comes in and boom. And you're like, OK, where did they come from? <laughs> like nobody can find anybody to work, but they're just walking in the door. It's like, OK. Okay, that's cool. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's weird. People go, how are you finding, you know, we can't stay open that many days. We don't have enough staff. That's not been our problem, you know. Yeah. Our situation was what I did when we decided to reopen in June of 2020. I called all the people who had, you know, had to leave. And I said, I'm willing to pay you 
because the stimulus went on till the end of August or the end of July. You know, they were getting uh, $600 a week plus $300 from the city of Memphis, whatever they got. So that was $750 or $800 a week. And I said, I'm willing, to, once I got the PPP, to pay you exactly what you were making once staying home if you want to come back. And they all came back. And they were like, oh, hell yeah, because they knew <laughs> once that was over, they would have a job. You know what I mean? That it would just keep going. And um, because I said, I can only pay you till your $600 a week stops. And then that's it. And then, and then you'll still be making, you know, but I'm, I raised everybody and that's, that's where we stand today. And they, everybody, but one person who was scared because of COVID, which I respected that, um, that was the one person in the kitchen who didn't come back. And um, all the waiters came back. Everybody came back. Was that the scariest time of your life? I don't know if it was the scariest time of my life, but I I wasn't worried so much. I, I felt like, you know, I feel like the quality of what we do has always been there. And I felt like that if, if that's what we were going to start giving back to the people, people were ready to get out. They were ready to get out of their homes and to quit eating out of a to-go box. And they, they were just like, please. And they were so thankful to be able to walk inside somewhere and sit down like real people, you know, to have a conversation, to have a social intimacy. You know, did we take it seriously? Oh, hell yeah. We were masked. We still to this day, you know, take our temp, take temperatures. You know, we, you know, washing our hands. So this, you know, we had to pivot. We had to totally change. I had like these push carts that I had bought where we would roll the push carts out with the food on it and we would make them take their food from that. We would bring drinks out on trays and put the trays down at the table and let them take their cocktails off the trays. I was so flipped out that we could catch COVID or my staff would, or God knows it was just wacky. And, you know, so it was hard. I mean, I had to hire some, I had to hire a lot more people because we had to seat people next door and out back and we were running around the whole compound. And, you know, it used to be just the beauty shop. So it was like, now it was everywhere. It was like walking a mile. And uh, it was, it's been, it has been wild. I'm curious about how you're able after, you know, being in this industry for so long and having four restaurants, four, right? Total. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yeah, it's about that. <laughs> okay. And then a catering company here and then having other things that have gone on prior. But anybody I know that has a company, it's so easy sometimes to get calloused. Calloused with the day-to-day, calloused with challenges, et cetera. But how, after so many years, continuing to be so engaged with what you're doing, and I'm sure you haven't gotten it right every single time, no. But how have you been able to live by principle in that way to take care of your people? Because there's a lot of people that own restaurants that would have just locked the door and been like, sorry, it's COVID, it's a pandemic. But they're not as invested as it sounds like the way that you are from our conversation right now. Well, I think um, it has to do with your integrity and your word. And I think that's all you got. And I think that if you live by your word, <laughs> And you veer from it, people are really hip to that. And they, you know, you're an open book. And I have a bleeding heart. 
<laughs> and I'll be very honest with you. I really do. And I know that comes a lot from my father. I watched him for so many years as I talked about, but I'm bleeding heart. I, um, I feel people's um, angst. I feel, you know, I, I've been around a lot of people who've died from addictions. People who've worked for me. I just, uh, I don't know any other way to live, Sam. You know, I don't, I'm not in it, like I said, for the monetary gain. I'm not, that's not it. And when you're not in it for the monetary gain, then then what is it you're in it for? You know, it's, and I, I just, I do feel their pain. I feel their happiness and it makes me happy or it makes me sad. And it hurts me to the bone when I see somebody suffering. And I, you know, they'll say, Karen, how many chances are you going to give this person? How many? You, you know, the more you give, the more they screw up. And I'm like, I know, but I was really screw up. And I know people gave me chances and I came back. And then, you know, I, you know, you just got to persevere. You just got to keep, you see something in them and you know, it's good. And you know, it's in there somewhere. And sometimes it doesn't work out, Sam, but sometimes, man, they come back and they, it's like, it, it's amazing what they turn around and give back. And it's just, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a give and take, you know, it works both ways all the way down the road, man. It's like, it's like creating menus, you know, I can sit there and, and sit on my computer and start thinking about stuff and I taste it before I even test it. And then, you know, Shay will come over and she's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And we just like work off each other and then we go back to the kitchen and, you know, she, oh, that didn't work. And she goes, what were you thinking? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm walking down the street, walking my dog, thinking about stuff that tastes, you know, oh, there's a coconut. Oh, there's a, you know, I'm in Jamaica. It's just crazy stuff. But I think, I, I don't know, you know, I, I learned from like squatters on the beach in Jamaica, Miss Winnie, who, you know, she would dig in the sand and build a fire and she would cook for me and my kids. And, and the food was incredible. And, you know, so I would bring her when I'd come back to Jamaica, I would bring her clothes and bring her pots and pans. And, you know, I would say cook, you know, I would bring like 16 people from work to Jamaica. When I had my first restaurant here, I closed down for a week and flew everybody there. And I was like, here's like $500, Miss Winnie, you know, cook for everybody. And, you know, whatever. Oh, no, Karen, that's too much money. No, no, no. You, you know, I want them to see how great you are. And I mean, it's just, I don't know. It gives me a lot of joy gives me a lot of joy. I don't know. I'm not a cookie book corporate person. You know, I have a corporation. I run it like a family, but I am, (laughs) I'm tough. I'm not going to sit there and and sugarcoat this. There are times that I'm like, it's got to be this way. You know, I come in, they call me a little twisty. I see 20 things that are wrong in the restaurant. You know, the, the floorboards are dirty. Why is this? What's happening here? Blah, blah, blah. The light bulb's out. Blah, blah, blah. They're going, oh, God, go home. You know, they're like, oh, she's back. And I just can't help it. I, it's the little details that can ruin and just bring you down. And they can be the demise of your business. It's the little details that can make or break a restaurant. The way somebody looks when they walk into work, if they're disheveled, if they don't have their makeup on or looking happy, or if you can tell they've had an emotional breakdown somewhere in the night before, it's it things don't work, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't equate and it doesn't transfer over to the customers. And without the customers, we're toast. 
I can't pay my rent. They can't pay their bills. It just, it's just, it's a domino effect. And so, yes, some people say she's tough, but I'll turn around and hug them with a lot of love and I'll give them anything they need and let them off to go on any vacation and do anything I can for them. But it's, it's a give and take, you know, I, I, I know what the restaurant needs to survive. I know what these places need to survive. And if I have to pivot on a dime, just like I knew my music club in the past three weeks when the Delta variant has come back so drastically and the musicians are going, we don't want to play in this small place. They're all booked. You know, we've got the social media out. I'm like, fine, let me figure something out. I have a parking lot. I hooked up electrical. I got lights. Boom, we're ready to go. And they're like, cool, <laughs> let's go. And that's what's happening. <clears throat> so you have to think on your feet constantly being ready to change. If people are just sick from COVID, you got to come in and cook. You know, you have to be ready to stand on your feet. You can't just sit back and go, oh, we're going to close because I don't know how to cook that. Oh, that's a bunch of crap. You know, if you don't know the back of the house, the front of the house, the left, the right, the up, the down, then you really shouldn't be in this business. And, and I know there's a lot of corporations that will look at me and go, you're crazy because there's a lot of, you know, corporations that the owners never walk into their places, you know, they, but I'm not one of those people. I'm, these are, I mean, they're a corporation, but they're not these, you know, they see me a lot. <laughs> you know, I am visible and there and, but do I get tired? Yes. Yes, I do. Do I get somewhat ready? I need to go, like I'm going, I need to go to Jamaica. Well, I can't go to Jamaica. They're on lockdown right now, you know? So yes, we all get burnt out. It's, it's tough. Hey everybody, we're gonna take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you wanna make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. Do you know of all your friends around the country that are at the level that you are, that have the reputation that you do, that you know, have restaurants to the quality that you have. Do you know anybody that does not feel the same way you do in the way you just described it there? Not my really good friends. They are all on the same wavelength. Yeah, this is, I, I, I know people that I don't know well, but I know of them um, who are a lot more, you know, very much more well-known than I am in the industry, much more. But the people I know personally, it's all the same. Just all in. Have you ever wanted to go back to painting full time or glass work? <laughs> I've thought about it. I have thought about it. 
You know, somebody said to me a few weeks ago, Karen, are you going to retire? And I went, retire? Let's see, that's interesting. When my dad retired, he passed away within a year because he he would work on Saturdays as a dentist, you know, play tennis on Sundays. He didn't know what to do with himself, you know? And for me, I said, well, if I do, I would probably have a little bitty place, whether it's in Jamaica or Sonoma or maybe even back in Brooklyn, you know, a little bitty joint might have like 10 seats <laughs> and maybe I'd paint on the side, but I'd probably, even if it was a little airstream that I'd drive around, you know, but I don't think I will ever quit this business. I don't think I will. What gives you the confidence to put everything you have into something and risk it? What gave you that years ago? That is a great question. It's funny, when I moved back from New York City, I was seven months pregnant. Bob and I had been married and I had just opened <laughs> Slim, so in New York. And so I, I traveled back and forth, you know. And so the the people at Northwest Airlines, they were like, well, Karen, you know, after seven months, you can't travel anymore. And I go, and so it was like getting close. And so they go, well, you open your coat, Karen. And we, you know, they knew me by then, right? And I was like, but I was really little. So they, they couldn't tell how many months ahead I was and stuff. And they were like, Karen, you got to quit traveling. You know, you're going to have to pick a city, New York, Memphis, you got to pick a city. We aren't going to let you on this plane anymore. And they knew me. And so I came back to Memphis, you know, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do? What the hell am I going to do? Okay. I'm just going to start a catering business. And, and so I started it in the house on Adams where the Molly Fontaine lounges. That was my home. And my friends who I went to art school with and, and um, you know, who I knew really well enough, they came and helped me start prepping. And I got one job and somebody said, well, Karen, years later, somebody said, how did you start your business? I said, hey, when you got a job, you got a business. They go, what? <laughs> I go, well, when you got a job, you got a business. They go, that's how you started? I went, mm-hmm, that's what happened. And from that one thing, which Carol Coletta, and I'll never forget this, she gave me the job to do the closing of Brooks museum when they closed to renovate for the big new wing and that job led to the beginning of another roadside attraction catering so it was true and it was it's i i didn't even think about like what could happen or if it could fail i never think i i don't know sam i i don't think like that i tell people i got a six-year itch instead of the seven-year itch so that was in 1987 i moved back started another roadside. In 1990, I wanted to open a restaurant. 1991, opened Automatic Slims downtown. I get bored quickly. Yes, I read that. In 1998, I was approached by Henry Turley to do a prepared, a, a prepared food area in Miss Cordelia's Grocery, which was just opening up the first grocery store downtown. And I did another roadside to go. So, in 1997, I also decided we in 1994 we moved out of our house on Adams, and I didn't want to sell it. So, uh, two years later, after Landmarks Commission and National Historic Register finally opened up Cielo in the house on Victorian House on Adams, and, and then in 2002, I was bored again and decided to open up. I wanted to open up a place in a neighborhood, which became Cooper Young, where people could ride their bikes to because I was downtown at Slims and I was in Victorian Village. And, you know, I wanted to move into Midtown. So opened up that. And then in 2007, decided I was sick of a fine dining restaurant of Cielo, a white tablecloth. So I decided to open up a lounge at the Molly Fontaine Lounge inside 
But in 2002, when I opened up the beauty shop, I opened up a general store next door called the Beauty Shop General Store. But six months later, I was like, okay, I don't do retail well. This is like $300 a day. This is a bunch of crap. (laughs) And what what can I open here? Oh, I'll open a sushi bar because I don't need a vent hood. Oh, that's good. And so I I said, I got to have a bar and a sushi bar. I got to have a bar. I got to. So in 2003, uh, six months after we opened the beauty shop, we opened in January, Do Sushi. And then 10 years later, in 2013, I, I started seeing sushi being sold at the gas stations. I was like, okay, we're close to the sushi. Bar. And they were like, what? And I was like, if you can get sushi at a gas station, we're closing. And I'm going to open a music club. They were like, okay, you have lost your flipping mind. And so we opened Bar DKDC, which means don't know, don't care. <laughs> I was more like, what are you going to call it? I went, I don't know. I don't care. And then I went, oh, that's good. <laughs> I mean, this is what I do. And I just... And it's fun and it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me inspired. And everybody around me is like, okay, let's just ride this wave out. What's happening now? And so they sort of stick around trying to see what's happening next. And which brings me to the pandemic. In the pandemic, when I opened back in June 7th of 2020, my daytime cooks from my lunch crew, we weren't open for lunch because nobody was back, you know, in their offices, and I didn't open for lunch. Well, that was in June. In October, I went, okay, this is not good. These guys only have two days a week that they're working, which is Saturday and Sunday, which is when we had brunch. And I was like, I got to do something, because they can't sustain like this. So I was like, I'm going to go back to what I know well, which is Jewish deli. And I'm going to open up a to-go Jewish deli into Bar DKDC during the daytime because we weren't open. The music club wasn't open. So we did, I opened Hazel's, that's my mother's name, Lucky Dice Delicatessen. Nice. And that's what I did during the pandemic when we weren't open for lunch. So all my lunch crew, they had jobs. And then it's still going. But when we opened for lunch just this past April... I think we opened for lunch in April. I decided to quit doing the to-go day and the actual menu onto the beauty shop's menu. So it has its own little area that says Hazel's Lucky Dice. So you can still get all the pastrami and the Rubens and the, you know, and the knishes and the matzo ball soup. So you can still get all of it now that we're open for lunch. But, you know, that's it's just what I do. I don't know any other way to be. I'll, I'll keep doing that. I know I will, you know. When you shut something down, does that bother you? It was really hard to sell automatic slims. I'll be honest with you. When I sold that, what happened there was I had a grill chef who got murdered outside of slims. Twenty-four. It was on Memorial Day weekend. They, I had to. I'll tell you, I had to call his parents Jeez. and um, tell them their son was gone. I'm very close to his family. They started a blueberry farm named after him because they lived out in the country, that I buy all the blueberries from them every year. They never found the people that shot him. And um, I was ready. Once that happened, I was like, I'm out of downtown. I'm done. I've been there 17 years. I said they built a neighborhood around us, which they did. We were the only people on 2nd Street across from the Peabody in 1991. And there was nothing else down there when I opened Slim. Slim's was 
you know, people hadn't seen that. They walked in and were like, what the hell is this? You know, I had a whole, servant whole snappers, you know, head, tail, the whole thing, you know. I mean, it, that was my true Jamaica, Mexico, New Orleans love. And um, it took me two years to sell it. And I sold it during the 2008 financial breakdown. But I was ready to get out of there. And uh, downtown had changed a lot. It wasn't what it was when I went in. And um, it's great now, but, you know, it was time for me to go. And that's when I sold it. And then, you know, that's when I started thinking about opening up in Midtown, getting closer to a neighborhood, you know. And uh, I've had a lot of uh, loss over the years in my businesses, a lot, to be honest with you. So, you know, there's um, there's a lot of gain and a lot of heartache, but it's just, it's a family and that's what happens in a family. And it's, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's part of the process when you're a creative yeah. and you're not, and you're not conforming and you're, right. and, and you're bringing your energy and your personality to something every day. Uh, yeah. But you, it's not going to follow the blueprint. No, never. And I, you know, every day is a different challenge. You know, you know that's sort of the beauty of this business. If you can live like that, some people just go, I, I couldn't do that ever. You never know what's going to happen. Nothing's the same. It changes on a dime and you have to be ready to change yourself on that dime and adapt quickly, yeah. <laughs> greatly, quickly. <laughs> I was going to ask you this at the beginning, but we started with New Orleans and, I th and that fascinated me. And so, and usually when I interview, I don't go off a script ever. So it's, I'm following the conversation or I'm following body language. And, but to go back, Dorothy Sturm, I know she was your mentor. Yes, she was. And for those of us that hadn't heard of Dorothy or know of her, mm. can you talk about her and talk about your relationship with her and, was there any influence in, in your life with her? Oh, my Lord. She was my rock. Dorothy Sturm was um, a teacher in my first year at the Art Academy. Her presence was <laughs> hard to explain. She walked into this room. She had a cigarette attached to the inner core of her lip. <laughs> she had a burnt white yellow hair on the top where the cigarette would constantly burn when she'd run over. <laughs> she had, she was tall stature of a woman. She wore those shoes that were corrective shoes. Now they would be called Birkenstocks. <laughs> but back then they were just big cloggy shoes. And, you know, she was, <laughs> and she said, you got to go back to your ABCs. I've got to teach you shape, form. I mean, she was just, serious. And I went, I have to go back to maybe C's. She goes, yes. And she goes, I'm going to work with you on this. And I was like, okay. She was so magnanimous to me. She was, I was in awe of her. I started going to her house and she just talked to me about her life. And then it got to be to where I just started staying in the metals department and I, I wouldn't leave. I was like, I would sit at her feet, just listening to the stories of her life. She had gone to New York city during the depression. She was with Betty Parsons gallery. She showed with Rothko and Pollock and she was 
larger than life. There were articles in her attic about her in Vogue and all these articles from the 50s and 60s. And I was just like, what the heck? I'm like, who are you? And what happened was Dorothy was sick. She was very sick. She had a strange disease. Her her legs were black from her knees down to her ankles. And um, so I would go over to her house and would help her do things. And she had these incredible collections of different gems. She sold them for thousands of dollars. And she was just, she would collect like, go to the Indian mounds near the, the metals museum before it was a metals museum and collect arrowheads. And she was brilliant. And she talked about RNA and DNA and it was just like mind boggling, but she also was probably one of the most incredible visual artists that I'd ever known in my lifetime. And so I moved to New York city and I decided I wanted to do a book about her life and she was alive. And so she was going to write it. And so I had met my husband then and we weren't married and he was like, oh, let me do the photography because he was a lighting director of motion pictures. He was really brought up with a camera around his neck. So what happened was I ended up, I was you know, pregnant. I decided to move back to Memphis. I had a really good friend here, Donna Leatherman, who decided she could raise the money for me. And she raised the money through Pitt Hyde and Ron Terry, who was the head of the First Tennessee Bank. She came to New York. She goes, I've got the money for the book. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Wow. And so I moved back to Memphis and the book started. And Dorothy passed away. We did a huge retrospective at the University of Memphis as we were trying to find the people that owned her work to photograph it for the book. And right after the retrospective, she did pass away. And then I had to find somebody to write the rest of the book. So we got Dr. Marcus Orr from the University of Memphis, who was a very close friend of hers. Dorothy had also written, not written, she to this day, the book, The Human Morphology of Blood Cells, it's used in every, to this day, in every um, pre-med school. She did it through watercolors, looking through a, a telescope. Wow. And they are, they're just these magnificent artworks, but they were used in these medical it was Sturm, Bell, and there was one other doctor, but it's still to this day used. So she was prolific. Yeah, that's really neat. I can't wait to see that book. And okay. it's it's also really neat to, and again, some of this is my own assumption, but to hear about your relationship with her, hear about the uniqueness of her personality, hear about the way you described yourself during that time, but then also just to think about the way you've talked about people having fun, food, drink dancing yeah. and music and it's it's almost like it seems like you were too extroverted <laughs> to, <laughs> You're a little too <laughs> to, to be a full-time you know painter or uh artist only and like this is just the way for you to manifest and and to live your life in this way through through food and drink and through giving people experiences it's true yeah it's it's you know it's nourishing to me and i think you know say somebody said why did you why did you get out of the art world i was like well i'm not really out of the art world you know i'm just creating art with food and it's juxtaposition it's the way it looks on a plate you know it's the space it's the you know it it really is it's creating you know and i say to people all the time you know i'm still creating paintings they're just the interiors of my restaurant you know that's why i think i get bored it's like a painter you have to keep creating otherwise you do the same thing all the time that's just 
nowhere, you know, that's resting on your laurels. That's what I'm saying. It won't work. So for me, every six years, I'm like, oh God, I got to create a new painting because the insides of my restaurants are really paintings. There, if you have ever been to the insides of a lot of these restaurants, right. you know, there's a reason for all of that craziness that's in there. If you walk into my house, you'll understand it. People who walk into my house go, oh, I get it now. It's like walking into a prop house. And there's just things from my life over the years that I've collected or brought with me, you know, and it's just the juxtaposition and, and how everything works together. But I do believe that my food our food is our paintings on plates. And, and I think, you know, you can have a broth that's a coconut milk, right? It's white, but all of a sudden you put the turmeric in it, you put saffron in it, and it becomes this magnificent glowing gold orange. And you're like, whoa. And then you put some chunks of avocado in that and chunks of uh, chunks of watermelon in that. And all of a sudden you have this incredible painting. And then, you know, you put some ramen in that and then you get some tofu or some steak on top of that and then all of a sudden you're you've got these layers well that could just be your watercolor that can be an oil painting that's how it plays out and so it's really really important for me to have those layers of flavor just like you have the layers of the interiors just like you have the layers of color and i think that's that's my life i i don't even know i don't even i wouldn't know how to live any other way it's just neat. I mean, you know, this is the first time that you and I have met and, you know, I know you've, <laughs> you've cooked for a lot of people, have an incredible reputation all over the country, but even just like my wife, she's a wedding hairstylist and she also works cool. in a salon, but the beauty shop's her favorite restaurant um, and, and, she, and she's, and she's also paints and there you go. I love it. So, she, you know, super creative and it's therapy for her. And obviously you know, it is. she's I very good it. at what she does, but the beauty shop's her favorite restaurant because of every time when we go in there to the way that you've just described it, you can feel that you can see that detail. And for me personally, that's something that I'm developing and respecting, but, but you have the ribeye. So like, I know every time <laughs> you can get that I'm getting the ribeye. And I, I love it. And, uh, and hey, you know what? That's a good thing. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderful. It's so cool to hear with such precision and detail and excellence and creativity, but how that's felt. And, and then I also think about seasons in my own life in business where, you know, when you, the, the rush, those six, seven years when you're building something and every waking hour, it's almost, it can be a problem because you can't think about anything else, but then you're trying to, in a first principles kind of way, you're trying to think about the solution. You're trying to think about the need and you're just obsessive about trying to get it and trying to make people happy and trying to succeed and excel. And, and there's so much fulfillment and gratification when you're doing that. And then it's, it just really sucks after five, six, seven years. Cause then it's like, you're emotionally so vested into something and you're doing things that are, are way more than what anybody else is, or a lot of people, what they're doing just because how consumed you are and trying to like build something or, or create it. But then it's like that iteration hits six, seven years. And then, but then oftentimes I don't feel like the tension of that is truly brought to the light the way it should be because every, you know, college degree you get in business or every book or every yeah, they can't or whatever, <laughs> you're just supposed to stay within the lane your entire, you know, 30 years. And obviously there's a lot of benefit to that, but, but like when you're a creative and you just, you have that drive and that energy, it's just, 
I don't think it's talked about enough and exactly. and it, and you can't control it. You can't tame it. And it's hard to really process that. So it's been, I mean, this whole conversation has been a ton of fun and invaluable in so many ways, but it's been really neat how you've just kind of opened that door confidently because that appeals to a lot of people because there's a lot of people that feel like they don't fit in a box, but you know, you, you can really kind of stay in that box. And, you know, I think, Really, Sam, right now, the, the beauty, almost the beauty of the pandemic is it's made people realize, wait a minute, I can do something on my own. I can start a food business at my house and, and take it out there. And I'm good at this. So this can be my business. You know, my thing is, I never thought about failing. That wasn't even, if I did, I did. It didn't really scare me. I was never scared of that. And that's not and that, that might sound ridiculous, but I, I, that wasn't in my thought process. You know, it was just like, if the quality, if, if you know that quality is there, you know, it's something that you're giving someone that they've never had before. And it might be true. You, you take that traditional and you twist it so that they're not so like, Ooh, what is that's too weird. You know what I'm saying? You sort of right. have to have that. You really have to think like that. There were times I remember back in the beginning that I would take something off the menu and man, it was catastrophe. People <laughs> were like, why would you take that off that menu? I'm like, okay, okay, wow. So you realize there's some things you're known for and you've got to keep those things. People, they want that. That's comfort to them when they come in. And I've had to learn that, you know, that was a learning curve for me. And it was a great learning curve for me. And to this day, there's things that have been on the menu since 2002 at the beauty shop, you know, that I will never take off. And I, you know, I would be shocked for that stuff, you know, and, but I have seen so many young people that are, you know, to, I call them entrepreneurs. They don't even know they're entrepreneurs yet, but that's just, you know, that's what you were talking about, taking that risk and not looking back. And, you know, what makes you think that you can do that? And, and does that worry you? Do you, you know, about failing or not making it? You know, I just say, go for it. I say, man, go for it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? It doesn't work. Try something else. It's not. And right now with, all of these things. We didn't have computers. I was brought up with no cell phones, which I really liked because nobody could find me. And, you know, <laughs> think about that. That was better days. You know, now everybody can find you. That's a drag. But, you know, we were brought up with no computers and this and that or whatever. But now the beauty of that is that you have Etsy and you have people from all over the world that you can sell stuff to and, you know, you can package it up and ship it out. And all of a sudden you've got a business. Who knew? Oh, my God, I make a great cocktail. I'm going to ship out this cocktail. You know, two broke bartenders, they started off during the pandemic. That was really smart. You know, brought it to the house. People didn't want to, couldn't go in. The restaurants weren't open. You pivot. You think, you go, what do I do well? I've got this. I can make it happen. I have a really good friend, Stacy Keel. She's a great artist. She started, like, putting her stuff out online and She's selling the hell out of it. It's fun. <laughs> it makes people happy. These paintings are great. And I'm like, you can do this. Go for it. Don't stop. Just try it. And she's like, damn, it's working, man. This is great. And she is surviving as an artist during these times. That's crazy. She's not with the gallery. She's not, but she's making it. And the stuff is good. And it's bringing people so much joy. And that, you know, I'm all about. I hire a lot of musicians and a lot of artists. When they have to go on the road, that is cool. Because to me, that's their art. I am all about that. 
but creatively they're really good in the kitchen too you know they it's like it's because it's it's different and it's fun and it's something new to them and it's it's just it's it's been a great ride i can honestly say that yeah and it's not even i mean i'm not you didn't ask me to say this but it doesn't sound like it's anywhere close to being over no it's not <laughs> earlier in the conversation you were talking about high middle and low and you know, like I was talking to a friend last week who's here and he loves you. He loves your restaurant. He loves your catering company. He talked about his office. His company was downtown and he just said, that's, that's where I went to lunch every day. And, yeah. you wow. know, and when Automatic Slim sold, you know, we just, we do catering and, but it was just so funny. Even just last week, I mean, it wasn't even scripted. We were just, we were catching up, but <laughs> we talked a little bit about this, but what have you learned about people when your company is hired, when you, when you're hired because of the skill sets, the personality, the quality, the dependability, all those things to work with people like Suzanne Sarandon, if I mispronounce it, tell me, but, or Jim Jarmusch. Ah, oh, yeah. Those days, those are good days. Tom Cruise, Francis Coppola. What have you learned from just the celebrity culture or the high net worth culture when you're hired because of your reputation and your excellence? And then your everyday patron, what have you learned about people? What have you learned about what people need? What have you learned about connecting with people? And if you just kind of dumb that down in a simple way, can you speak to anything about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, when that, you know, Memphis, um, had a lot of films back in the early 90s come here and it was a great time. It was a great time for my catering business. We did a lot of, you know, we didn't have a food truck, but we ended up getting a lot of gigs and uh, start with Jarmusch. I got a call. Um, I had just come back to Memphis. It was 1989, I believe is when Mystery Train was, I think, um, 88, 89. And um, a friend of my husband's had worked with Bob in New York City and the film world. And she knew that Bob had moved back and she knew that he had married somebody who had a catering business here. And so she called me, she was working on the Jarmusch movie and she called and she said, Hey, you know, can you cater? I was like, Oh yeah, sure. You know? And I had remembered watching Stranger Than Par Strangers in Paradise in New York City when his first film came out and I was just enamored by it, loved it. And so I was pregnant with my, I was a pregnant, when was it? Yeah, I think I was pregnant with my second son. I can't remember. Anyway, we, we catered the whole film, uh, Mystery Train, which was incredible. Just, you know, the people in the cast were Sleepy John Estes and, you know, the, um, what's his name from The Clash, but it was just, an, it was a great time. So we started with that. And then the interesting part of, the situation with Tom Cruise was my husband, I had a big catering thing downtown and my husband, there were some lights that were out that he had put up before this wedding party from New York City was coming. And he had to go up on a Jenny lift and he, he did not put out, put the outriggers out. And so the Jenny lift started falling, and started falling 30 minutes before the guests were arriving and he learned, you know, he was trained by the Teamsters, so he tucked and rolled and got out of the thing, but he landed on his back. There were no cell phones back then. And uh, we had to, somebody had to run 
I don't know where to make a phone call to Slims to tell them to call 911 and that Bob had, we thought, broken his back and push come to shove, whatever happened. Uh, he was in the hospital. He was supposed to be a rigging gaffer on the, on the film, on the firm. And so he couldn't work. And I had two kids and babies. And I got a call from the film commission saying, uh, we need, Karen, you need to find somebody to cook for Tom Cruise to be his personal chef. And I said, well, why don't you let me try to do that? Let me you go out for the job. Oh, no, you're too busy. I was like, no, 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 I really need to. We need that second income. You know, this is not good. And so I did. And, and I got the job, which was great. <laughs> It, I mean, it's, it was a whirlwind of like five years where we were catering for this one. I was catering, cooking for these people. But, you know, the thing about it is that's really interesting, Sam, is to me, they were just people. Right. I mean, it, everybody around me, they were like not people. I was getting calls, you know, from a spy magazine, you know, the phones, slips, you know, yeah. for Tom Cruise. I was like, oh, no, man, I can't talk to you. You know, I was, you know under contract and not, I don't see nothing. I don't hear nothing. I don't speak nothing, 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 nothing. And I kept to my promise. And um, it was, I mean, I can't really speak about what happened. There was a lot of things that happened that I really cannot, I will tell you in private okay. you, um, on a podcast. I will not do that to this day. I will honor that. But, you know, I dealt with them as just regular people and, and, that was sort of the beauty, you know, they'd come into the restaurant and people would flip out. They'd start, when they'd leave, they'd start selling. I mean, I had waiters who were selling like forks and knives and spins. Oh, <laughs> I'm touch this. I'm like, what, Julie, what are you doing? I'm sorry, Garen. I'm like, this is insane. But, you know, people were just starstruck. I mean, you know, it was just like, they'd have to close roads down in downtown Memphis when they were filming or they were walking into slums to eat it was insanity. I'm like, what is going on here? But you know, my thing is, it, <laughs> I, I think that uh, everybody's the same, really. You know, it's just, I think be, being in the film business also in New York City, it taught me that a lot. You know, you know, I, uh, I have a great story to tell you about one time I was, Mike Nichols, me and Susanna were um, catering a seated dinner for Mike Nichols. He was directing Whoopi on Broadway and and he was directing and he did Heartburn, which was, you know, Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. And, and so it was a winter night and there was only 10 people at the table and I was in the kitchen and I remember the doorbell rang. Well, there was a butler there and I kept thinking the butler would get the door. Susanna was out there with them and she's, you know, whatever. And I'm cooking inside the kitchen and, and so the doorbells are ringing, the doorbells ring. I finally went to the door. And so, and Jack Nicholson's standing there and it's snowing. And I'm like, I'm flipped. I'm like, oh, hey. And he looked at me like, are you going to invite me? <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, right. He ended up coming in the kitchen and sitting down and Susanna comes in the kitchen. She's like, oh, Karen, what are you doing? Get up. We've got, you know, you've got to come help me bust these, this table. And she went, she turned around and said, Susie? Jack Nicholson. Like, oh, wow. Oh, okay. And so he's sitting at the table, you know, and in the kitchen and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And he goes, no, no problem. No problem. He finally goes out, you know, they've already eaten dinner. He's way late, you know, but I mean, it was stuff like that happened all the time. So when I got to Memphis and I started catering these films, 
I was really used to that, you know, and so it was sort of second nature and it was okay. You still got a little jolt, you know, when you first met somebody, you know, when I went and had to cook for Tom and it was his trainer, his driver, his assistant, his right-hand person in me. And, you know, they sat in the kitchen and I cooked for them, you know, they ate and they were like, okay, you're hired, you know? So, and every time, every night he would come back, I'd go out to Shelby Forest, which is where they were staying and in this beautiful home with a moat around it, you know, <laughs> hilarious. And uh, yeah, it was wild in the middle of Shelby Forest. And it, it was just, it was some crazy times. Is there something like when you meet Jack or meet Tom, I'm saying their first names, but you know, yeah, right. <laughs> meeting these cats, is it just a connection or a, a vibe that you got where they had their craft, they had their thing, and you had yours, and you just knew, you tried to know what they wanted and how to make them happy and give them that experience, but you kind of like all the stuff about the celebrity stuff, personalities, and all, you just, all that was a out of your head, and you just That's thought right. about them as people and what they want, and you knew you you were going to deliver on your end, and you knew what your craft was, and that's all that mattered. It, that was true because you know you had to, you know, I cooked every day for them, you know, for Tom I did, and then on the weekend sometimes he want to, you know, he always played basketball and stuff, you know, and and then he whatever if he had people over or whatever, you know, you just it was just a chill. It became like your buddies, you know, just hang out. I took Travis. He was really little. He was maybe four or five. Yeah, about four, I guess. And, you know, he'd come out there sometimes with me and stuff. And he didn't know who Tom was. He could, you know, he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, if I didn't have a babysitter, I was like, I'm sorry, I got to bring my kid. But yeah, it was like that. And, you know, I remember it, at, um, it was funny because Susan Sarandon also lived in the same house with the moat around it. And she wanted to have, I think it was um, the director Schumacher. It was Joel's 50th birthday and she wanted to have a big birthday party for him. And we did this huge catering fair. People flew in from everywhere and they had, you know, the guys uh, on stilts that walk around, you know, they flew yeah. them from LA and they were walking around and, you know, we had to set up these tables and, you know, it was just, beautiful i mean it's beautiful out there don't get me wrong this you know it's on acres and acres and i mean it was we had a blast it was great and she was you know but it was cool everybody was just chilled it was like hey you know this is great you want to swim in the pool after it's over you know and it was really hot and we like you know all went swimming at the end of the night after it was over with them and it was just fun and you know i just learned over the years hey man you know they're just people like you and me. This is what they do. This is what we do. And, you know, and hopefully they like it because yeah. if they don't, it's not good. <laughs> Have you ever, you said you cooked in front of Tom and his entourage and they said, okay, you're hired. Has there been a time where somebody was like, sorry, we're going to go somewhere else? Not in that situation. Um, most of the time with the people that came in for the film world and, and during the early 90s when we had so much going on, it was really all the John Grisham books, if you think about it. It was The Firm, The Client, The Rainmaker, all that, you know, back then. It, it was a different time. But no, that we catered. We would, a lot of times, they bring, they started bringing in food trucks from, say, Nashville, Tomcats Catering, you know, big food trucks and stuff. And I totally got it, or from LA. Sometimes we were hired to do third meals, you know, as, as the years would go on and stuff like that. So we were always involved in some capacity with them. 
but no, it never, it happened. Have I been turned down for big jobs? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and, and that, and that's fine. You're not going to get everything. It's, there's no way. And as, as I shouldn't, everybody's taste is different. Um, but as far as in the film world, if, you know, if we had had a truck, we would have probably been on a lot more of these movies, but as the truck started coming in and I didn't, want to get into a food truck situation it was not something i ever wanted to do it's just even to this day it's not something i've ever thought about have you ever thought of traveling the world and just being an exclusive chef for a certain few no, i have not it's funny i have not i really haven't you know there was someone else who came here their their daughter was was at saint jude and i'm not going to talk about anything but i was hired to be their personal chef really for the daughter, because there was a lot of things she had to eat at certain times and certain waters and, and, and certain times she had to eat it after the thing was cooked. And, you know, she was very young, but it ended up being that I started cooking for the family. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, it, is, it just, you know, I was like, and I had two kids of my own, my husband was passed. And I was like, I, I can't stay out of here this long. You know, I can't do breakfast, lunch and dinner. I got to go, you know, and, and I, I hated that, but I, I had to leave, you know, I just, I, I just had to. And, um, but it was an interesting experience, you know, years later, you know, she's come back and, and I've seen her, she's doing great, but yeah, there are things that, that happen where it's just, you know, it's, it, it doesn't jive. It, it's not right. Or they want something else or someone else. And, and, and I'm good with that. I'm really good with that. Yeah. When you think about idea to execution, uh, a new restaurant, a new concept, a new deli, a new venue. Is there anything that you can say that you've taken away from after doing this for so many years and just having a lot of successes and then having things that you know didn't stick? Is there anything from a creative standpoint to execution standpoint that you know you've got a nail to get traction for it to actually stick that you can maybe share? Yeah, for me, and this is true, and probably not for everybody, but when I walk into a space, I get a feeling about a space. When I, I was looking for a space to open a restaurant after the first four or five years of catering. I knew that I had a clientele, had built a clientele um, big enough to sustain a restaurant. And, but that's what I had to do. I had to build a clientele from another roadside attraction. And then I was like, okay, the next step is my first restaurant. When I and I, I looked at many places downtown. One was an old pool hall in South Maine when there was not even anything on South Maine. And this was back in, you know, the early 1990. And but when I walked into Slims and I saw that space and it didn't have a second floor, but I envisioned a second floor because the ceilings were so high. I was like, I got it. This is it. This is it. And it's funny when I rented it and then I had the drawings <clears throat> drawn up by this friend of mine i was like i want a mezzanine he was like what i was like i think there's enough room to do a mezzanine and so when my landlord during construction i remember him coming in going wait a minute we rented this as this space now you have all this other space i said mm -hmm, that's new york new york air rights <laughs> what do you mean and i said hey man you know and it's really funny i learned that in new york city you know they go up and it's air rights and it's like he couldn't rent me the mezzanine that i built i just rented the the square footage right and so he was like god oh, dog karen and so <laughs> I, like, I learned a few things there and then um and then when i then i wanted to open up 
something in Midtown, I looked all over. And I'd looked at the space where the corner is. And me and Wayne Edge, who, if it wasn't for Wayne Edge, he's a sculptor who went to the Art Academy with me. And he's my, one of my dearest best friends. And the reason the places look the way they do is Wayne was my contractor, but he's not really a contractor. He's a sculptor. And so he went with me and he went, no, 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 this place, no, no way. And then we, I remember we looked at Anderton's. We really wanted Anderton's, you know, they were going to sell it. And, you know, he was like, man, this is awesome. And it ended up not working out. I was like, damn. Because <laughs> uh, it was just, we ripped up that carpet. We saw the floors. We were like, oh, man. And so then I it's really funny. It was pouring down rain one day and I saw a for rent sign where the beauty shop is. And the door was sort of cracked open. I was by myself. And uh, it was like the day after we had looked at the place on the corner in Cooper Young. And so I walked in and I was like, holy crap. There was a guy, a barber shop in the front. But as you walked around this wall that has now been gone, everything that you see in the back of the beauty shop was there. Like all the glass bricks, right. the terrazzo floor, the mirror on the wall. I was just like, what is this? And when you have to realize I'd been in New York all during the 80s. Well, that's when uh, Robin Tucker had Hollywood Designs, which was her hair salon there, which I didn't know about it because I never got a haircut there. You know, I moved back in 87 and, you know. So then I, I called the number because there was a woman in there goes, oh, I'm going to open up a refurbishing furniture shop. I went, mm, okay. And so I called the number on the sign. I went, hi, I'd like to come over wherever you are and give you some earnest money. She goes, what? And I go, yeah, are you the owner? Yes. I said, oh, where where are you? And I said, I, I, I want to come over and give you a check now. And she went, okay. And that was how it was. And, and I just, I saw it. I mean, I... It just went bing, and I saw the tables in the booths, and I saw it. So every place, it has to talk to me to some degree. Otherwise, it's not just like, oh, somebody said, oh, you should go into a strip mall. Memphis. I went, no. <laughs> you know, my parents were like, why aren't you going to East Memphis? You know, what what are you doing downtown or after, after Slims? Why aren't you coming back East? That was always the thing. Come East, come East. And I was like... It's not my deal. When I when I came from New York and I knew I wanted to open a restaurant, I wanted someplace where people were walking, you know, like New York. I wanted to see people walking. And so that was the only place that that was going to happen was downtown because they walked at lunch <laughs> to get lunch yeah. from law offices or something. And then in Midtown, I wanted a neighborhood where people could ride their bikes and hang out and come three times a week and be on a patio. And and so that was sort of how I came to these conclusions, you know. But you you have your instinct, your gut that speaks to you oh, yeah. and you follow that. Did you question it early on or have you always been confident? I always followed it. I never questioned if I felt it and I could see it visually, I could see what I could do inside these spaces visually, then it was never a question. And then I would bring the artists that I had befriended over the years at art school or good friends from high school, whatever. And they were the people who created and helped me make it work. That's so good. <laughs> Curious as we're wrapping up, you know, you've talked about you get bored every six, seven years. There's a lot of us that can resonate with that. Obviously, COVID was 
I guess it might be a, a milestone for that six, seven years. I have no clue, but yeah. you talked about, you talked about retirement and that's not going to happen. And at the very least it'd be Brooklyn with a 10 seat or 10 top. Or Sonoma, California, somewhere near, near my kids. You know, I, I spent the pandemic, it was a year and a half before I saw each one of my kids. That's insane. I'm sorry, but that wasn't cool. <laughs> that yeah. didn't for me at all. But, you know, will I ever move back to New York City? I don't know. Could I afford to live there? I don't know. <laughs> Would I like to? Oh, yeah. But, you know, it could be New Orleans. It could be Sonoma, California. I don't know. It could just be right here in Memphis, Tennessee. So you have no plans or no thoughts on another restaurant anytime soon? No, not in Memphis, but somewhere else. Gotcha. I do. It won't be that big. It'll be little. Very little, because I think that that's sort of the beauty of that. That's uh, There's something about that that's really special. Yeah, this has been awesome. Sam, it has been. I've really enjoyed talking to you. This has been so much fun. Hopefully, I'll meet you in face one day. You tell me when you're coming. You so will. Can, all right? I will. I've got your number. I'll shoot you a text. And okay. so grateful for this. And this has been so fun and, and honestly, very valuable in so many different ways as well. So I can't wait for it to get out. Thank you. And I want to meet your wife. I can't wait to meet her. All She'll right. love it. It'll give me major brownie points. <laughs> so cute. Thank you, Sam. See you, Karen. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I want to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this was a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. and You can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.